Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 29 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q. My name is Richard Kutcher and I am delighted to say that joining us this week is a man who has appeared on the pod a couple of times before but has never been one of my guest co-hosts and that is Rich Smith, President of the Vermont Captive Insurance Association. Rich, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much, Richard. Really appreciate you inviting me on. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to finally get you on as one of my esteemed uh, co-hosts. <laughs> how, is the, how is the situation in, in Vermont, Rich, regarding the, the pandemic and, and kind of your work from home situation? Yeah, we, uh, you know, uh, my organization, small organization, was able to, to transform pretty easily to work from home. We had already had uh, planned for it to some extent. And, you know, because of the nature of what we do, working from home, you know, was relatively easy to do. Yeah, I, I like to tell people, you know, I live in uh, rural central Vermont. So, you know, uh, stay at home order really didn't change much. I never see anybody anyway. So it's <laughs> actually not not too bad. And Vermont actually is weathering okay. Um, I think they've uh, done a good job here, the leadership here and keeping um, the coronavirus uh, as under control as possible, as, as much as possible. So, uh, but yeah, obviously uh, we're, we're itching to get back and, you know, like everyone, yeah, we're ready to to get back to whatever normal might be in the, in the near future. Yeah, yeah, good to hear. Well, glad to hear you and the team are, are keeping safe and well. Well, later in this episode, we will be hearing from Scott Felton, Group Insurance Manager at Compass Group PLC. Compass Group is a FTSE 30 company and the largest food service provider in the world, and they own a captive in the Isle of Man. I will also speak to highly respected US tax lawyer, Chaz Lavelle, a partner at Dentons. Chaz has become the foremost commentator on tax issues relating to the controversial 831B tax election in the United States. And he will join us to share a bit of context regarding the Supreme Court case that was announced on the 4th of May regarding CIC Services LLC's challenge to the Internal Revenue Service over notice 2016-66. So more on that in the second half of this episode. But but Rich, I thought it was, uh, was perfect timing really to invite you back onto the pod because VCIA have announced a bit more information uh, about their plans for a fully virtual conference in August. And from a personal point of view, the conference is always my highlight of the captive calendar. And although I'll be sad not to spend a week in, in glorious Burlington uh, with you and many friends in <laughs> August, I, I am looking forward to seeing what, what VCIA and the team and the industry can come up with. So VCIA made a really early call to replace the August annual conference with a fully virtual event. How, how did you come to that decision, Rich? And, and when did it become apparent that you really did have to make uh, an early call on this? Yeah, I think it really uh, came uh, became apparent when uh, the SICA conference, Dan Toll had to cancel the SICA conference, which is another great captive conference in our industry. He only had a matter of really days, actually, to make that call mm. based on the how the how the pandemic was uh, in, in Impact in the U.S. and it, for us, it you know we were we were hopeful that we would be able to at least uh, host some portion of the conference in person. And that, that's always was our hope. We you know we in the industry, we you know the, the VCIA staff and our board of directors in the industry, we love as you said, we love getting together, seeing each other, meeting. It's a real big part of the conference. But at some point, we knew if we if we were going to put on. Uh, a conference, a virtual conference, that we we really had to tra- change tack. That we didn't have 
the, the option to wait any further just for planning purposes, also for uh, the reasons that a lot of these platforms that are hosting these uh, virtual conferences, obviously, were being swamped with uh, uh, you know other organizations looking to do the same. So we knew we had to make a decision uh, earlier, and we knew if we were going to do a virtual conference, we needed to do, we needed to be a hundred percent in. We couldn't try to overlay some webinar technology on our uh, in person conference. I mean, we could have, but I don't think it would have been um, as robust, quite frankly. So we just decided that we were going to go all in, uh, go 100% uh, virtual, and uh, hopefully create a platform and an experience for attendees that uh, will in some ways mirror the in-person. You know, obviously, a lot of that's missing in terms of that social interaction, but we're, we're really trying to, uh, you know, provide a, a robust experience for, for our attendees. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask you in a second a bit more about kind of what kind of details are already emerging, because there was some information put out this week. But I guess it's also a great opportunity for you, Rich, to attract uh, a broader audience and maybe some of the European travelers that are on. And you, you've got many of captives and probably members who are based in Europe or Asia or elsewhere in the world who don't get the chance to come to the conference. So surely it's also an opportunity for you to, to reach out a bit more broadly to, to a wider audience. That's right. I mean, that's what we hope one of the big benefits of going uh, virtual will be is, you know, we always attract a number of folks uh, from uh, different parts of the world to our conference every year. But obviously, you know, because of the travel, the expense, it's, it can be limited. So this this really will provide an unlimited uh, opportunity for the captive industry to come together and hear uh, from, you know, the experts we bring together. And, you know, we really focus on putting the best uh, educational sessions together that we can and the most relevant educational sessions we can. So we're hoping we can really attract a, a broader group, a broader audience uh, to, to, the, um, to our conference. So obviously it is early days in the planning, but of course I also imagine it's full steam ahead for you guys. So what do you hope to achieve with with the first virtual VCIA conference? Obviously we want to we want to provide that educational platform that we do uh, in all our conferences. So the most up to up to date, relevant information by the you know the top experts, and that we will continue to do. Uh, we also want to try to provide that uh, networking experience as well. And there are a variety of different ways uh, people can meet virtually, either in uh, networking sessions or through the exhibit hall, other ways to connect uh, that uh, actually they wouldn't have had if they came to the conference, you know, in person. So it's, there is a certainly a trade-off in terms of that kind of face-to-face that you won't necessarily have, but there's also a a broader reach that you might be able to connect with through this kind of conference. Great. Well, certainly looking forward to it, Rich, and I'm, um, I'm sure we'll have you on the pod again in the lead up to uh, August. But more from uh, Rich on some of the broader impacts and fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and potential impacts on our industry a bit later in the episode. But now we are going to hear from the captive owner, Scott Feltham. Scott is a good friend of mine and group insurance manager at Compass Group PLC. Compass is a FTSE 30 company, as I said at the top of the episode, and they own a captive in the Isle of Man. Scott discussed Compass's captive structure, how he sees the pandemic affecting the insurance market and how captive utilization may evolve in an extended hard market. Coping as well as one can in lockdown, um, given it's now, what, approximately seven weeks since the government imposed the restrictions. Um, I think initially, like uh, I think a number of people I've spoken to, I found that I was spending more time sort of sat at the laptop, you know, working longer hours potentially. Part of that sort of owed to a lack of routine combined with there being a need to work some very long hours. They you know, really put lots and lots of effort in um, owing to the immediate impact of COVID on Compass Group's business, which, if I'm brutally honest, uh, was seismic. 
Um, you know, I think one of the biggest fallers in the FTSE 100. So, um, yeah, you know, all, all of a sudden overnight we're having to adapt, um, you know, a bit of a change in risk profile, something of which I need to remain cognizant at all times. Um, but I think now that I work to a routine you know, where I can, um, and I think given that things have sort of steadied somewhat at this point, um, I'm becoming used to what is now the new new normal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell us a bit about, I know you're relatively new, I think just over a year at Compass. Tell us a bit about your current role and, and your experience with, with captives in general as well. Yeah, sure. So I'm engaged in the role of Group Insurance Manager at Compass Group PLC. So we are very briefly the, the largest contract caterer in the world um, with operations in around 45 countries. We are headquartered here in the UK, um, at which I am based down in Chertsey, down in Surrey. Um, so yeah, I've been with Compass just over a year now. I- interestingly, prior to my joining, there was no one um, in my role prior to me coming along. Um, it- it- in a way, that has pros and cons to it, but I think broadly speaking, it's been advantageous for me. Um, you know, it's given me the ability to shape things as I see fit in relation to risk financing strategy. Uh, global insurance programs, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say I've very much enjoyed my my first year at, uh, at Compass, notwithstanding um, the the rocky road just recently, which has been brought about as a consequence of, of COVID's impact. But still, yeah, very much enjoying life. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of my remit, it, it is the whole entire group. So, you know, generally, you know, a very busy day in day out. Again, given that I'm the I am the only person dealing with insurance within within PLC. In many ways, my focus since joining Compass has been centered around total cost of risk. You know, firstly understanding what this looks like, balanced against the organisation's appetite and tolerance for risk, just to determine the optimum risk financing strategy for the group. Um, you know, making very good progress so far. Um, and again, that's despite some of the recent challenges relating to the spread of COVID. Um, in terms of my experience of captives, um, yep, significant experience over the years uh, since I started life back at Balfour Beatty a while ago now. In a previous life, I actually took the lead in closing down a captive, which, which frankly, um, and despite some challenges, I found to be very, very interesting. Uh, not something I'd done before, and it came around sort of very, uh, very sort of late in the day. Can you do this before year end? I think it was around September time. That was certainly in a, a very interesting process, <laughs> believe you me. Um but in terms of Compass, yeah, we have two captives. Um, one of those is dormant at this point in time. Um, it has been for a while now. Otherwise, our live captive, which is domiciled on the Isle of Man, is something that, generally speaking, Compass has been using now uh, as a risk financing vehicle for, for a number of years. Great. Well, we were already uh, experiencing a hard insurance market before the pandemic, of course, probably throughout 2019 and maybe just before then. What, what impact do you expect the pandemic to have on on the insurance market in the kind of medium to long term? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think undoubtedly the market is going to harden even more so as a result of COVID's impact. I think as at today, um, I read somewhere else that um, I think insurers are reporting losses, estimated losses of between 32 billion and 80 billion US dollars. Um, losses relating to COVID. So so naturally, that's going to have an impact on pricing, um, capacity going forward in time. So yeah, absolutely. I think the market's going to harden even more so. Let's face it, it has been tough enough in any case. Um, I think this will will only serve to to harden it further, which means that we have some very, very tough tough times ahead. Um, So I think bracing oneself for a a difficult renewal or whatever is is a must. Um, I think also bear in mind that on the whole, you know, buyers of insurance, especially the larger corporates, um, are going to have a, a lower, a much, much lower exposure base uh, for some time following COVID. Yeah, so in turn, that's likely to have a detrimental impact on premium generation for insurers. You know, so they're going to have to re- recoup some of that rate somewhere. So, you know, I think we need to keep an eye on, eye on all of this. You know, and I think, again, what one other, one other component to bear in mind, I think with interest rates um, going down in the UK, 
uh, you know, being down on what they were, the returns on insurers' investment portfolios are likely to be less lucrative uh, for quite some time. You know, so again, that's going to have a negative impact on the rates at which the market is prepared to write risk, along with the availability of market capacity. So, so yeah, I think in short, it will harden even further as a result of COVID. Well, of course, you're you're in a in a position where you do have an active captive already in place. How much how much of an advantage do you think that the having a captive gives an organisation when the insurance market is turning or, or hardening even further, as, as we're going to see? Uh, yeah, I think it offers a big advantage. You know, pr- provided there is sort of suitable kind of communication around. Um, some of the benefits a captive can offer. Um, you know, I, I think just, just to expand on that, as, as a risk management tool, you know, captives offer even greater value in a hardening market as a mechanism through which to transfer risk, you know, where, where the market all of a sudden has a much, much less, a much less appetite for, for risk than previous did. You know, to me, in a way, this has the effect of making captives far more relevant in terms of the role that they can play within organisations and the value that they are capable of adding. But, but to my point of just now, it really is incumbent on insurance and risk management professionals uh, to highlight the benefit of captives to senior stakeholders. I mean, otherwise, there is a risk that um, some of the opportunities uh, relating to the use of a captive may be overlooked uh, and potentially not realised. So, um, yeah, um, I absolutely, I think at this point in time, big, big advantage provided that people um, realise some of the benefits. Uh, I would also add, I think, over the short to medium term, yeah, generally speaking, across the board, I think we'll see a general increase in captive retentions, um, especially as buyers of insurance you know, following COVID open their eyes up to the fact that, that there is a need for insurance products that offer greater value and bear more of a direct correlation to the key risks they face. Um, some of those could be emerging risks. I, I've got a feeling, and certainly I will be pushing for this, um, I would urge others to do the same, but I think there's going to be greater innovation um, relating to the design, construct of risk transfer solutions. Uh, and for me, the use of a captive must be factored in as part of any discussion or decision-making surrounding that. You know, certainly I would urge buyers of insurance to begin thinking about this with support from their brokers. Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing for a number of years now kind of captives being used in a more holistic manner to kind of collect up um, kind of those traditional PNC risks, but also start quantifying some of those enterprise risks. And obviously, there's an opportunity there surely for reinsurers to behave much more in it as a capacity tool uh, to provide that kind of catastrophic layer of insurance above that. And I think we've seen many sophisticated corporations going down that kind of much broader holistic approach to using their captive with all kinds of different risks and then accessing capital above that. Do you think that's something which we, we might see more of? Um, I, I think so. I, 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 I think we will do. You know, again, it goes back to my point um, earlier on, sort of regarding the need for insurance or rather risk transfer solutions that, that are fit for purpose and furthermore, um, more responsive to the key risks to which organisations are exposed. You know, I think arguably, if the market is to harden further, you know, insurers' appetite for risk, um, including certain emerging risks, is going to, I think, shrink even further. And I think uh, as a consequence of that, there is going to be a need for organisations, buyers of insurance, to have more in the way of skin in the game, let's say. I think to this end, you know, captives offer a viable tool through which to finance uh, retained risk. You know, again, I think this plays to my earlier point. It's going to result in increased captive retentions over the next few years um, as buyers of insurance navigate the hard market, whilst at the same time making sure they've a risk financing strategy that is both optimal and uh, fit for purpose, I would say. You mentioned um, uh, earlier about kind of st- internal stakeholders and, and making that case. I mean, how how do you think the hard market does make the captive an easier sell internally and to kind of justify its existence? And, and how do you go about kind of communicating the, the value of the captive to your to kind of your your internal uh, 
internal leaders. I think one thing I have done, I mean, since joining Compass in many ways, um, I think we've greater opportunity within Compass to make better use of our captive. You know, again, for the captive to to be more, um, I guess, perceived by senior stakeholders as being a strategic tool through which to add real value. You know, it could contribute to the long-term prosperity of the company if if used properly. I mean, one thing I've done is, uh, yeah, with support from brokers and actuaries, um, sort of model the the solutions that may be achievable through our through using our captive and um, to a greater extent. I, I think that what what that serves to demonstrate is how captives uh, can become more beneficial as compared to. Um, yeah, buying conventional risk transfer through the insurance market. Um, I, I think especially during a hard market, and we've seen that over the last year or so, you know, certain financial lines where, you know, we, we've had to become more inventive in terms of looking at how we might use the captive, modeling some of those solutions, putting those in front of the board, um, getting the board's buy-in, demonstrating how you know, there is that value add through through the captive, I think it's going to be absolutely key. But again, I would urge people to sort of rely on their brokers and actuaries for that support in terms of modelling some of that some of that detail that one would take to take to a board. Just lastly, Scott, um, in light of on night of the pandemic and the kind of the response of the insurance market, do you think captives may have a wider role to play then in these catastrophic and broader enterprise risks in in the future? Um, I think so. Um, I, again, it probably plays to an earlier point of mine, um, you know, relating to the need for insurance risk for solutions that are, are probably fit for purpose and more sort of directly responsive to the key risks that organizations are exposed to. Again, one could argue that, you know, that, that, that with, with the market hardening even even further as a consequence of COVID, insurers' appetite for risk is going to dry up even more so. That is going to necessitate uh, organizations having uh, you know, greater skin of the game, higher attentions. Um, and to this end, you know, captives offer a viable tool through which to finance retained risk. Um, again, yeah, to me, this will result in increased captive retentions over the next couple of years, I would say, as buyers of insurance navigate the hard market. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation, or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Rich Smith, president of VCIA. The insurance industry is taking a bit of a battering in the media and courts of public opinion on both sides of the pond, it seems. And captives obviously sit in quite an interesting place, Rich. You know, they're insurers, but also often they're a step between the insured and the commercial insurance partners. Are you seeing any signs that captives could get caught up in some of this crossfire between politicians, regulators and, and the insurance industry? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's certainly a concern. But as you said, captives are sort of, a, a you know, in an interesting place when it comes to insurance. You know, a, lo- a lot of the captives or most of the captives are owned by their parents. So there's really not that same kind of policyholder insurance company relationship uh, that uh, you're seeing a lot of folks talk about either in uh, uh, different legislative bodies, different state commissioners uh, or in the press, as you were mentioning. But, you know, clearly we have, you know, we have risk retention groups over here that are, are basically group captives that have, you know, w- will have a number of owner insureds. And, you know, the, the question is, you know, as states and even the federal government are looking at, uh, in some some cases, these uh, retroactive business interruption policies they're look, looking to enact, you know, there's questions about whether captives or risk retention groups might get swept up into that, uh, you know, in, into that as well. So that, definitely a concern, something we're, we're watching. Yeah, I do find uh, some of those, and I'm not on top of all of the different uh, legislative proposals being put forward at federal level or at state level in the United States, but I do find it a bit odd to hear of of uh, politicians and legislators trying to enforce companies to pay out on policies which don't necessarily exist. Uh, right. I, I find that a bit strange. I understand where there can be conflicts on wordings, of course, and there's plenty of those arising, and we're seeing several suits arrive in, or arise in the US, uh, particularly in relation to Lloyd's and a few other insurers, so they're, they're certainly one to watch out for, but I do find it a bit odd to hear politicians talk about uh, kind of forcing insurers to pay out on things that they didn't actually underwrite. Um, considering some of the other impacts of the coronavirus on the captive industry, is there anything else legislation-wise that you're keeping an eye on uh, at the federal level in, in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, one of the most interesting proposals out there is uh, looking at potentially creating a uh, pandemic backstop, federal backstop, very similar to the terrorism backstop or TRIA, uh, as it's called here. And really what it would do is, well, right now it's still, there there are lots of different uh, discussions about what it should do and what it might not do. But in general, what it would do is create that same kind of federal backstop for insurers to provide uh, the kind of business interruption insurance that may be triggered by another pandemic. And this could uh, be very helpful to not only the traditional insurance market, but also the captive market uh, as well. You know, captives have been involved with the the TRIA program for, for many, many years now very successfully. And I could see that uh, captives participating in a, in a program like this as well. So so that's one that uh, we're very interested in. We're, we're still waiting on details. It's, you know, there's a kind of draft legislation, but nothing is, as at least as of today that I know of, has been officially introduced. But it is, it's it's an interest of the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Maxine Waters. So I'm assuming we're going to see something come from that. Yeah, great. And we're seeing a similar thing on this side of the pond that I'm sure other conversations are happening around Europe and, and further afield. We've got Paul Ree in the UK, which is a kind of a similar, a similar structure to, well, a similar tool to TRIA in the US. Uh, Paul Ree is a bit more of a formal structure. It runs very much as an insurance company uh, mandated by our treasury. And there is conversations at a high level of government and in the industry about if something else could be produced, uh, like a pandemic re, or even if Paul Ree could be utilized right now 
uh, in response to the pandemic because it has got a big pot of money sat there which could be used. So yeah, there's something to watch out for. And, uh, and just like with Tria in the US, uh, Paul Ree is accessed by captors. If you go on the Paul Ree website in the UK, you will see uh, all the list of members and there's lots of insurance companies you won't recognize the names of and they're normally captives. So uh, you, I'm sure we'll see a captive take up of Tria or, or a pandemic re or whatever it's called uh, around the world where they can. Well, on the face of it, one of the biggest legal developments relating to captive insurance this year and, and possibly for some time emerged on Monday the 4th of May when it was announced a US Supreme Court would hear the case brought by CIC Services LLC, a Tennessee-based captive manager against the Internal Revenue Service. This case has been progressing its way through the US justice system since March 2017 when CIC Services originally filed a complaint against the service in a Tennessee federal court which challenged Notice 2016-66. The court dismissed that suit as did the Sixth Circuit on appeal in April 2018. But now the highest court in the land, the US Supreme Court, has said it will hear the case. So with all this in mind, there is really only one person for me to call to put this in some kind of context for our listeners, and that was Chaz Lavelle, partner at Denton's. Uh, Chaz also discussed some other major developments and actions in the microcaptive space in 2020, but he began by explaining the relevance of of the Supreme Court's involvement and the context in which we should see it. Having the Supreme Court hearing a matter relating to captives and sounds incredibly exciting, but I gather this uh, much this is much more about process and procedure than anything else, uh, Chaz, rather than anything that is potentially going to change the way captives operate or are regulated. Is, is that correct, Chaz? And can you just place this in some kind of context for us? Yeah, that is correct. This is a very important case, but it has nothing to do at all with what is insurance for federal income tax purposes. What it really does is it asks whether or not the IRS validly issued notice 2016-66. And that's the notice that required taxpayers to file those tens of thousands of forms, 8886. So have we ever seen anything relating to captives reach the U.S. Supreme Court before? Not directly on the question of what's insurance for federal income tax purposes. The captives do cite a Supreme Court case called Todd Shipyard's. And that one deals with self-procurement tax, but it was not a specific captive case. So the Supreme Court news has has come as the fallout from the original notice 2016-66 continues. The IRS announced in January this year that they were going to expand its auditing activity to thousands of taxpayers that had insurance companies making the 831B election. And then on March 20th, the service sent a letter to everyone that had filed an 8886 form. Now, I think the estimate that that is somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 taxpayers that would have got that letter. And when I first saw this number, I was kind of shocked because it suggests to me that the true number of captive entities is far and away higher than the previously thought number of around six and a half thousand worldwide. But but Chaz, I believe you can you can put me straight on that. You can you can put that fifty to hundred thousand number in some kind of context for for myself and our listeners. That's right. So let me give you this example. Suppose you have a captive and they've got three affiliated insurers that do oper- operations and they buy insurance. But it's owned by multiple generations of the family. So assume there are eight different taxpayers, eight different individuals that own the operating insured. So each of those would have filed an 8886. So you'd have one for the captive, three for the insureds, eight for the owners. 
So that's a total of 12. So that's 12 8886s for just one captive. And so when you see how that can expand, you can see how quickly the whatever that massive number is, 50,000, 100,000, 150,000, maybe 86s, can melt down to much closer to what we assume are the number of captives plus cells out there. Yeah. And that's just relating to those captives that have made the 831B tax election. That's correct. Although what you'll also find is that some taxpayers who weren't sure whether or not they were exactly covered by 2016-66, they went ahead and filed because there was such a large penalty for failing to file. So there are probably several, there are probably lots of those who filed 8886s who really had no obligation to do it. And there may be some in there who were very the very smallest captives, 501c15, as opposed to to 831B. I, I don't really know, but that is a possibility also. Yeah. And I think just to, to, to put in context to my listeners as well, I think when we talk about when I've previously talked about on in captive review and business insurance come up with a similar number every year of around six and a half thousand captives globally, that normally doesn't include sales. And sales is often a place where micro captives or those making the 8th Federal B tax election often reside. So we've always known that there are hundreds and thousands of other sell captives out there, which don't get caught by that 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 normal kind of global number of around six and a half thousand. But this letter, Chaz, there's been quite a big backlash to this latest letter from the IRS. Uh, what, what did it say, and, and why has it upset so many people in the in the captive industry in the United States? Yeah, first of all, the it, it's letter sixty three thirty six. It was a, designed by the IRS specifically for these small captives that they're looking to audit because in January. The IRS said, we had put out a small settlement initiative to 200 taxpayers in September. 80% of the people who got that settlement offer accepted it. And now we're going to establish 12 audit teams and we're going to conduct thousands of audits. And so they sent out this letter and people in the industry assume it went to everybody who filed an 8086. And it was the next step in the IRS's pledge to audit thousands of taxpayers. So the very first thing it says is the IRS has won several cases, and several in this context is the IRS has won three out of three small captive cases. And then they say, and again, I'm going to put it in my words, but this is their letter. It says, look, we're coming up on the 2019 filing season. And we suggest that if you're in a small captive arrangement, that you go and consult a tax advisor. And remember, we've won three out of three cases. So maybe you don't want to take the deduction in 2019. And if you want to file amended returns for prior years, mark on the top of those amended returns, micro captive, and send them to this very specific office in Philadelphia. And if you go ahead and amend, you might not have penalties. The letter also asked two specific questions under penalties of perjury. The first question was, when was the last year that you took a deduction or got a tax benefit from the transaction? And then secondly, when did you cease participating in the small captive transaction? The letter also says that if you don't answer, you may be audited. And personally, I think that you will be audited. And they said, if we audit you, we may deny your deduction to the to the insureds, and we may impose tax 
on the premium income, that is tax the same income twice, tax the premiums to the captive, and put penalties on both the insureds for the when we disallow the deduction and put penalties on the captive when we impose tax on the premiums and charge interest. So a lot of, uh, well, just a, a very broad sweep at the industry, it seems, and a lot of questions, a lot more admin to do at presumably quite a difficult time for many businesses. Correct. One of the areas of the micro-captive industry, which has been particularly interesting and, uh, since the kind of outbreak of the pandemic and the, and the huge kind of economic shock that we're, we're all experiencing, is there's been quite a bit of talk around actually some of these enterprise risk captors, which have been looked upon quite skeptically in the past, you know, quite becoming very, very useful to their owners and, and, and having policies which will respond when a lot of the commercial market will not be responding. So do you think that the coronavirus pandemic actually may reinforce the value of enterprise risk captives if they're providing vital claims payments and cash flow support to their parents? And, and might that change the perception of captives at the IRS and some regulators and lawmakers if they do save thousands of America's mid-market businesses from, from going under? Well, certainly it's going to be very valuable to those who have the coverage. And hopefully, but we'll see, the IRS will recognize that. So let's put that in context. A lot of the commercial policies out there either expressly exclude pandemics or when it's talking about a pandemic type exposure, write the policy very narrowly. And so the working assumption is that a lot of the commercial insurance companies believe they do not have cover. They do not uh, have responsibility for a lot of the claims or a lot of the losses that are being uh, generated out there as a result of the pandemic. Some legislators are trying to figure out whether or not they can impose that liability on ins commercial insurance companies. There is some litigation under existing policies where insureds are saying, we think we have coverage. Court, please declare that, read this policy and, make, and verify that we do. On the other hand, while the commercial policies are in general terms, either have the exclusion explicitly or alternatively right very narrowly, a lot of times the captive policies either explicitly cover pandemics or they're written as difference in conditions policies. That is, we will cover everything that the commercial policy doesn't cover. So if commercial policy doesn't cover the pandemic, then the captive policy will. Or the captive policy is just written in broad terms, which will encompass the pandemics. And it'll be interesting to see what the IRS does, because the IRS is one of their really substantial concerns up till now has been these captives don't have very many claims filed. And as a result, we are skeptical that either it is a real risk or real insurance or that the premiums are just so highly overblown. And the taxpayers in general have said, well, these policies are really low frequency, high severity. And we may find out that they really are very high severity and the small captives may have a very high loss ratio for this year and maybe years in the future. And we'll see what the IRS's response, if any, is to that.
So, Rich, as I said, I'm pleased we could draw on Chaz there to provide that explanation. And he also discussed for us this latest letter that went out to uh, tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of uh, supposed captive owners uh, in March. And that has upset a lot of people. There has been a lot of noise around 831B in the last few months and the last you know five or 10 years, more than we care to remember, probably. Um, VCIA has often stayed out of the 831 debate as a, as a low proportion of your members would qualify for the tax election. But I saw that you did feel compelled to, to write to Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin in April in relation to the IRS's March 20th letter. Why, why did you feel the need to, to speak out on this particular development? Yeah, we, we really felt that letter by the IRS was not only ill-timed, but ill-worded. And the, and the reason really is, as you mentioned, it's not that we have that many uh, 831Bs or, or micro-captives that might be taking that tax election. It really was the principle of the matter that uh, the uh, IRS uh, has been focusing on captives for some time now, and that uh, we don't disagree that some of that focus was important. You know, there were uh, certainly uh, a number of uh, 831Bs or micro-captives that were abusing the insurance uh, angle of what a captive insurance program should be providing. But we thought that both the broad nature of what that letter had tried to en- encompass, as well as the timing of the letter, right during, uh, you know, when so many organizations are scrambling to deal with the pandemic and, and how to support their uh, members and their insureds, uh, just seemed ill-timed and ill-conceived. And we just felt like we needed to speak up. We wanted to then the IRS and Secretary Mnuchin to really focus on the issues of the bad actors, not the industry as a whole. And the other, uh, the other part of it was that uh, we really expect them to provide more guidance, you know, for the industry. Um, and those, the, those were really the two biggest elements in terms of why we decided that a letter was important at this time. Great. Well, uh, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much, Rich, for coming on to the podcast and quite a jam-packed episode. And we have got lots more exciting episodes planned in the next few weeks, lots of new names and some big new players in the global corporate market as well. So do stay tuned for some interviews I'm really excited about in the next couple of weeks. Please remember also that the best way to stay up to date with the Global Captive Podcast is by subscribing on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, CastBox on Android, Spotify, SoundCloud are often the most popular, but you can find us on any other podcast app or platform as well. So thank you to Scott Feltham, Chaz Lavelle, and of course, Rich Smith. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Richard. Stay safe, stay healthy, and see you next time, Captives.